Hi, and welcome to episode 10 of CavalierCast, The Civil War in Words, a podcast that looks at anything and everything to do with the War of the Three Kingdoms. In this episode, I'll be speaking to Colonel Nick Lipscomb, who has just released a new book, An Atlas and Concise History of the War of the Three Kingdoms. But before I go any further, I'd just like to say a quick thanks to Jamie for suggesting Nick and the Atlas as topics for the podcast. Speaking of which, I recently ran a poll on Twitter and Facebook asking listeners which subject they'd like to hear about in future episodes. And from a selection, Sir Thomas Fairfax received by far the most votes. And so Fairfax will be the subject of the following episode. You can follow me on Twitter at 1642author or facebook.com forward slash Mark Turnbull author. Now, Nick's book maps the various battles and sieges that took place in England and Wales, Scotland and Ireland, and follows on from his acclaimed book, which examined the Peninsular War in the same way. Nick worked closely with the Battlefields Trust, Scottish Battlefields Trust, and the National Civil War Centre Newark. Academic reviews have hailed it as essential for comprehending the full extent of the war, and for understanding its conduct and outcome, as well as an important work that deserves wide attention. And lastly, a first port of call for all enthusiasts and scholars looking at a cartographic interpretation of the civil wars, as well as 156 detailed maps which show not only the better-known large battles and sieges, but also numerous smaller engagements and key political events. It covers tactics, weaponry and an introduction to the causes of the war and the politics of the early 17th century. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome Colonel Nick Lipscomb to CavalierCast. It's a pleasure to speak to you today, Nick, about your new book. Well, it's lovely to be be invited on the programme, Mark. So you've written and lectured extensively on the Napoleonic Wars and the war in the Iberian Peninsula in particular. And now what made you uh, undertake such a detailed work on the conflict that took place over 150 years earlier? Well, I, I've always had a, an interest in military mapping that took root pretty early in my uh, army career. Um, then when I retired from the army in 2013, I moved back to the United Kingdom uh, and I ended up in Oxford in a small village in North Oxford called Old Marston. And at the back of my house here, as I was walking the dog on one of my first little trips out, um, I saw a house with a blue plaque and a large shield next to the door saying Cromwell's house. And that um, really got me, uh, pricked my curiosity, if you like, and led to further investigation. Um, English Civil War was not really something I knew an awful lot about, apart from the fact that it was neither exclusively English nor civil. So I, I then started to, to look at it. In the process of looking at it, particularly with my interest of military mapping, the first thing I discovered was that there were no really good maps, and certainly no single uh, publication or atlas existed encompassing uh, the wars, the English Civil Wars, or uh, the wars of the three kingdoms as it uh, took part in, in the three Stuart kingdoms, England, Wales, Scotland, and in Ireland. So the, the military campaigns of the wars of the three kingdoms have never been mapped before, as you've said, in, in their entirety from 1639 to 52. Um, in your view, what was the most pivotal battle or siege in each of the three kingdoms? 
Yes, it's a good question. I mean, in England, I think it has to be Naseby, uh, which took place in June '45. Really, it, that was the death knell, if you like, to the initial royalist struggle during the first of those English civil wars, which concluded the following year. Uh, new model army had been formed in the winter prior the, to the battle, and, and this, as it turned out, was a game changer. It um, really brought to an end after that battle royalist resistance on a national scale, although there were a number of small royalist fortifications that held out. Indeed, much of the operations for the rest of 45 and 46 were mopping up those royalist uh, fortifications. Um, but the new model army then went on to quash the discontent that started the second wars and decisively ended the third uh, by defeating the Scottish army at Worcester in 1651, and indeed the Irish army, or Cromwell, um, although in fact Ireton uh, was commanding by that stage at Limerick in October of that year. Uh, so I think Naseby without a doubt for England. For Scotland, tricky one, because Scotland's role in the wars of the kingdoms is very complicated. Um, they start proceedings by opposing Charles in the Bishops' Wars, 1638, 39 and 40. Um, and as a result of that, a couple of factions emerge or armies emerge in Scotland. The first is the, the, the Covenanters who sign up to uphold the Presbyterian religion and therefore ipso facto come into conflict with the king. Um, and indeed, in 1644, during the first of the civil wars, they moved in support of Parliament's forces in North England and then were uh, pivotal, Marston Moor, for example. Um, the second of those groups were the Scottish Royalists who supported the king. Um, and then uh, in the latter of the wars, the second um, of the civil wars, there was another group, the Engagers, who were a faction who so-called, because they made an engagement to support Charles I in 47. Um, then following his execution, the original Covenanters made an agreement with Charles II, who was then king in Scotland, but not, of course, in England, uh, when he was planning to make a preemptive strike on England. So very, very complex um, business of Scotland's role in the, in the wars of the three kingdoms. Now, Worcester, 1651, put an end to uh, the, um, the, the, the invasion, if you like, of Charles II's force uh, into England. Um, but I would have to say, I think if I was to pick a battle in Scotland, it would probably have to be Philippow uh, mm -hmm. in September 45, because that really brought to an end an extraordinary series of victories for uh, the Marquis of Montrose, um, a larger-than-life figure who'd caused havoc across Scotland uh, as uh, the royalist representative in the preceding year. Um, Ireland, another tricky one, because the struggle there was fueled by religion, politics, and uh, an internecine struggle among the Irish Catholics. But I think... <clears throat> the Battle of Rathmines just south of Dublin in August 49 uh, was probably the most pivotal battle. It secured the key city um, of Dublin and its port on the east coast where uh, more parliamentarian troops could then be disembarked, having left England uh, from either the areas around um, uh, Chester, North Wales, um, or... Uh, in the southwest around Bristol. 
Um, and that effectively also then destroyed a great swathe of the Irish royalist army and set the scene for Cromwell's subsequent invasion and subjugation uh, of the island. Um, I will add Wales as well, although um, Wales itself was a royalist bedrock. There were no large-scale and decisive battles. The country um, was littered with castles, and it was the mopping up of those structures which took an inordinate amount of time following that Battle of Naseby. And I suppose the siege of Pembroke Castle in 1648 during the Second Civil War was the most decisive of all of the sieges there, because to all intents and purposes, it ended royalist resurgence. Uh, it also freed Cromwell's army that was conducting the siege, um, heading up a, a, a part or portion of the new model army, and it enabled him now to head north and counter that Scottish engager army, which had crossed the border at Carlisle. Uh, nice to, to mention that uh, Welsh siege as well. Excellent. And and obviously there's a lot of interlinks with, with some of the battles, isn't there? You know, for example, Naseby, if if that was perhaps different, then Montrose um, may have had better results at Philippeau. Absolutely right. I mean, and this was one of the key things about uh, the English Civil Wars. I mean, we're going to talk about generals a bit later, I, I know. But, um, you know, one of the things that comes out loud and clear from... Uh, the conflict, the wars of the three kingdoms, is a lack of strategic vision on all sides, really. Uh, perhaps less so by the parliamentarians in the latter part of the 1640s. Uh, but that failure to have a strategic vision uh, and a strategic plan uh, resulted in battles having an inordinate effect on other aspects of the wars in other parts of the kingdoms. I think um, Leslie even said as well, if, if the king had attacked him before he'd left England, uh, he would have been hard-pressed to defeat the king and, and obviously may not have even got to Scotland uh, in yes. time. I mean, I think Charles is the, um, is, is the worst uh, of all of the Civil War commanders at uh, sticking to a strategic plan. In terms of which battlefields or um, the battlefields themselves, which one do you think remains most like it was during the civil wars? Um, well, it's fair to say that I've not been to all the battlefields. So I've not been to any in Ireland and only a few in Scotland. Um, but I have been struck by how few of the battlefields have changed dramatically of those that I've visited uh, in England. Uh, I think Marston Moor in Yorkshire, that's hardly changed. Um, then Naseby, Northamptonshire, the, the A14 aside in the southern part of the battlefield, they're pretty much as they were, as is a round way down in, in Wiltshire. But um, with the exception of the sieges, which of course inevitably took place uh, in towns and villages which have inevitably expanded, um, most of the Civil War battlefields are in pretty good shape. Yeah, I've always liked um, Master Moore for that reason. I think there's only um, White Sykes Close that has a little bit of debate about where that actually occurred, the last stand of the White Courts. Uh, yes, that, that's correct. A couple of new new theories on that, isn't there? Yeah. And are there any battlefields that have been completely lost, do you think? Well, mainly those that I mentioned that were in built-up areas, certainly Brentford and Turnham Green in London, it's almost impossible to work out exactly what happened and where there. Um, not entirely impossible, but uh, tricky. 
Bristol's another case in point. Um, the city has built up and expanded remarkably. Uh, the opening stage is the Battle of Preston, 1648. Tricky. The area is now completely built over, apart from the, the that sort of green piece of land which enclosed, I think it was called Watery Lane or something, uh, where the Lancashire militia marched down to cut off the Scottish trying to cross the, the single bridge over the River Ribble. So, um, yes, I mean, there, there, there have been some which have gone, but have they gone completely? Not necessarily. So you can still yeah. work out enough with the maps as to where the, the battles and the engagements took place. Yeah, and, and when mapping those battlefields and sieges, did, did your work throw up any new research which cast doubt on any ac- accepted details? Um. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, since 1990, there's no doubt the battlefield archaeology has been a game-changer. It's uh, enabled us to determine the more precise locations of, of battles, um, how troops uh, and armies were deployed, um, even the events and outcomes of battles uh, we've been able to, to look at and, um, and, and work out much more accurately. But the whole business, therefore, of mapping battles um, of 350, 400 years ago is a moving target. And that's why I realized when I started the project uh, that any serious examination of the wars could only really be undertaken in conjunction with the experts. And the experts were the Battlefields Trust, the Scottish version of that, and the National Civil War Centre. Um, they have been working with other organizations for the last 30 years in trying to confirm the locations of battles, less so, I think, fair to say, sieges, um, and to confirm or change hitherto accepted versions of events. I mean, some examples of, of their work include Edge Hill, uh, Cheriton, and, and Winsby, to name a few. Other battles, um, such as Roundaway Down, remain contentious. Uh, there are two views on the um, axis of attack by the Royalist Cavalry forces uh, at Roundaway Down, whether they came directly from the north or whether they came from the northeast. Uh, and I, it was here that I had to use, as I did for my Peninsula War Atlas, my military experience and judgment to look at the options and um, to make uh, a decision. Now, necessarily saying it's right or it's wrong, but I've made a decision as to what I think happened uh, at Roundaway Down, and therefore I support much more the attack from the northeast rather than from the north, and that's largely because of the reaction of Waller's forces to the attack. In other words, um, it's extremely unlikely that a force that is attacked then runs away um, at a right angle to to the line of the advancing or attacking troops, which is what an attack from the north, because they they, they, uh, retreat um, in disarray. I mean, it's a route, effectively. Yeah. uh, Almost uh, due west. So if they were attacked from the north, it's extremely unlikely that uh, human psychology is such that you turn around and run directly away from the line of attack. So it's much more likely, in my opinion, that they were attacked, therefore, from the uh, northeast. Um, another interesting uh, area of 
disagreement is the location of the bridges laid by Cromwell's engineers at the final battle uh, of Worcester. Um, and again, whilst battlefield archaeology could help in that, um, there's nothing been, that's been thrown up at the moment. Again, I've just used my uh, judgment on that. My father was a, um, uh, an engineer, bridging engineer, uh, in the Royal Engineers, and therefore, having discussed it with him, we, we came up with what we believed to be, which was that the uh, second bridge was south of the confluence of, of the uh, the river there, um, the name of which escapes me for now. And which battle or siege was the hardest to map, in your opinion, and, and why? Yeah, that, again, another good question. I'd say it's the Irish battles. There's very little cartographical work that's been done for these, and uh, I couldn't, for example, find a map of the Battle of Dungan's Hill in 47. Trying to work out exactly where that took place was extremely tricky. Um, I mean, the way I do this mapping, and in fact, I've got some um, some presentations which I'm giving. I'm giving one to the National Army Museum at the end of September, uh, which may be, uh, you know, something that the uh, your listeners can can tune into. It will be available on the internet. Um, talking about how I mapped the civil wars. And I think it's important to mention very briefly here that what I do is I, I try and work out exactly where it is on a modern map and then overlay all of the historical data I've got then onto uh, that modern map. And I was having real difficulty with, with Dungan's Hill. Um, but I was able to pinpoint the area largely as a result of then the area I was looking for was the bog that many of McCullough's men were slaughtered in. Um, and I was able to do that by an article in a local paper, um, which, was, which, which was online. But also it was the support I received for many of the Irish battles and sieges by John Day, uh, who is a senior member of the Battlefields Trust. The Battle of Knocknanoos, also 47, was a similarly tricky battle. Uh, and, and that was Ireland as well. That was Ireland as well, yeah. 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 Uh, and you mentioned McCullough there, so just um, just to point out there that McCullough, Alistair MacDonald, um, was uh, the, the leader of the Irish troops that fought alongside uh, Montrose in Scotland for, for a period, wasn't he? And then I think That's um, right. he, he left just before Philippo. That's correct. And so the, the maps of the various battles and sieges uh, is one thing to map out what happened, um, but do they throw any fresh light upon the commanders that fought the battles? For example, their, their tactics, feelings, or any newfound respect even? Well, when I started to examine the wars, um, and, and remember I came on the back of this as a, as a Napoleonic expert, uh, where we have um, a, a large number of extremely capable generals. Um, I came to an early conclusion, I have to say it was a slightly misguided one, but it was an early conclusion there were no great generals in the wars of the three kingdoms. Um, there was a dearth of talent in the aristocracy across those kingdoms, um, some of whom had fought on the continent in the Thirty Years' War, which was, of course, simultaneous, 1618 to 48, but they'd rarely commanded anything other than a regiment. Um, I mean, I, I, some of your listeners might... Uh, disagree and think that Rupert was a great general. Uh, certainly he was dashing and successful, but in my opinion, he lacked strategic vision um, and he was great heading a cavalry brigade in the attack, but he really didn't understand much about combined arms tactics and he was in good company there. All the need to, to write and stick to a strategic plan. Um, I think the same can be said for many of the commanders um, and certainly including Charles himself. 
But then, to be fair to them, when you juxtapose them against the likes of Prince Maurice of Nassau uh, or Gustavus Adolphus, um, no one great general was going to stand out. If I had to pick out one in the early years, I would say it was Alexander Leslie, the first Earl of Leven, who learned his trade under Adolphus, and he was probably the best. Uh, William Waller, hailed as William the Conqueror by the London press, in my opinion, was absolutely woeful. Uh, his failure at Roundaway Down, which we've touched on, um, his losses uh, at Second Newbury, allowing the King's Army to escape, Cropperty Bridge, they're all good examples of poor generalship. What of Cromwell? Well, the deeper my research took me, the more I found myself warming to Cromwell's generalship. Uh, it was his level of planning before executing his independent commands in Ireland in 1649 and then Scotland a year later that really began to mark out his ability uh, in, in, in my mind and, and clearly in what he was achieving. And one of the, I remember when I was researching this, I read Martin Bennett's book on Cromwell. Uh, and he, Martin said that Cromwell understood five things from Sun Tzu's strategy. The first is that he understood the way. That's the strategy piece. The second, the land. That's the tactical use of land. The third was the weather. Uh, and the fourth and fifth were leadership and discipline. And actually, I would, I would, Absolutely agree with Martin. But I'd add one more thing, and perhaps that is, in Martin's view, wrapped up in the way. Um, he understood logistics as well. Uh, you know, if you, if you didn't get the right bits and pieces to the right place at the right time, that they were, um, you know, that the, the effort was, was uh, going to be worthless. Um, and it's fair to say Cromwell, from a man who knew little to nothing about military tactics in '42, he emerged as, as a general and a pretty great general, um, both of national and, by the 1650s, of some international importance and standing. With Cromwell as well, um, you mentioned there uh, more towards the, the latter part of the war, isn't it? But do you think it did help Cromwell that um, the the Parliament, by that time, that the parliamentarian armies and, and sort of direction was a lot more centralised um, than the early parts of the war had been, you know, you had sort of various different areas of command spread all over the country. Yes, I mean, I, I think there's um, no doubt that, again, simultaneous, not quite, but evolved a little bit after the creation of the new model army, uh, was this removal of command by committee. I mean, the committee mm. of two kingdoms or both kingdoms uh, that had almost in a sort of Soviet style, they had these sort of political um, representatives who followed the army headquarters and, and influenced the army headquarters in its decision-making process. Um, there is no doubt that held back the parliamentarians. But conversely, it's also fair to say that those independent armies, um, the Western, the Northern, the Eastern, and so on, they had some advantages, uh, and certainly advantages over the Royalist armies as well. So, But it was, I think, by 1645, um, the move to less centralized control, something which was not lost on Cromwell himself, of course, uh, enabled them to, uh, to commit to the tasks nationally rather than being constrained regionally. And I think that's coming back to 
talking about great commanders. I mean, I think William Brereton, I have a lot of time for Brereton, but I think his problem was that he was too regionally focused. He just simply didn't have the national understanding. And, you know, having served in the army myself, I've seen this very often um, with individuals who are perhaps good at commanding their companies, but they don't quite understand the requirements of the regiment or the brigade and tend to look at the, the requirements of their company in, in advance of that. Yeah, yeah, good. And, and interesting as well to hear um, Leslie, you know, Alexander Leslie mentioned as a, as a, a great commander. Um, so yeah. Not often that you, you hear um, comments about Leslie. I think he had a lot of strengths and, and I think that uh, um, some of the parliamentarian commanders learned a lot from him. And there's an impressive list of references to the book as well. Um, so were you surprised by how many records still exist about the wars? Yeah, I was absolutely astounded, actually. Um, I mean, the period leading up to the wars was one of what I call, well, I don't call it myself, although I resound what uh, the historians have called it, the print revolution. And this resulted um, along with a sort of collapse, if you like, of and print censorship as a result of the war to an explosion of printed material. Um, I also like to make the point that this is akin to the internet or social media revolution that we're witnessing today. The British Library and the, the Bodleian here in Oxford are brimming with letters and reports, battle reports, propaganda sheets, weekly newspapers of one persuasion or another, and many more things. And a glance at uh, the book's bibliography, um, as you suggest, gives a flavor of this. Um, there are also a remarkable number of other primary sources in the guise of diaries, journals, and historical discourses. And um, while this massive information was, was a great help, it was a surprise, as I say. Um, it was a great help on the one hand. It did make the job of sifting, logging, recording, and then subsequently recalling uh, where I'd seen all this data, um, quite a challenge in putting this all together for the book. Yeah, that's it. With the the, the various memoirs as well, you, you've got to sort of take them each on face value, don't you? And sort of, as you say, piece them together. That that's always the case, but it's particularly the case in a civil struggle. American Civil War diaries are the same, but it's particularly the case in the Wars of the Three Kingdoms with accounts of what happened in Ireland. They are, um, you know, either slanted uh, heavily on one side or heavily on the other and trying to actually work out uh, what happened and get the middle line um, was often not easy. Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah. As well in Ireland, you, you had so many different pulls as well, didn't you, to, to some of the other kingdoms? Yes, I mean, as I said earlier, there was an internecine struggle that was going on in Ireland. You also had the papal representative going over there stirring things up uh so i mean the the the, the whole the wars of the three kingdoms are an incredibly complex and convoluted affair the origins of the wars are in extraordinarily difficult to to get one's head around mm. and that's why there have been so many different interpretations of them over the years and how has your work on the book changed your perception of the Wars of the Three Kingdoms, or has it changed your perceptions in any way? Yeah, I, I can. It's an interesting question. That's a good one, because when I was at school, I don't know whether it was the same for you. I mean, I distinctly remember being taught that Cromwell 
and Parliament were the forces of good who dislodged the forces of evil and removed the autocratic king. And this sort of David rising up against Goliath um, is absolute nonsense, and it's uh, perhaps another example of how the educational curriculum um, has been and can be sabotaged by individuals of a political persuasion. In my introduction to the book, I attempt to outline the causes of the wars. But as I said, this is an extremely complex and convoluted uh, subject. Many different interpretations have evolved over the centuries. The Whig interpretation in the mid-19th century, uh, the Marxist view, Karl Marx writing about it being an English bourgeois revolution in Das Kapital, um, and more recently, revisionist historians probably latter part of the 20th and up to today, uh, which have conducted, um, or who have conducted, a, a, a basically a full reappraisal. And that's what I would like to think uh, my work has done uh, as well. I mean, even Winston Churchill, in, in his history of the English-speaking people, stated that it was a class struggle. Well, it, it certainly was not. I mean, brother fought against mm. brother, father against son. And the key thing is that there wouldn't have been uh, a civil war at all if the governing classes had not been uh, divided to suggest uh, that it was, uh, as Karl Marx did, uh, the same um, uh, sort of revolution as the French Revolution in 1789 or the Russian one in 1917 uh, is completely uh, missing the point. There was a question that I was just asked recently for a, a blog um, um, about the the war and uh, the causes, and I think it's often seen as ty- as you say, a tyrant v freedom fighters. But when you yeah. look at it, the reality was um, there was nothing like, and never probably was going to be anything like our democracy today. You know, the, the vote to the common man and woman wasn't going to be handed to them by either side, um, as no, as we see. Right it turned out um so yeah but there are a lot of parallels between uh say the brexit vote if you like that divided the country on the sort of ideological lines i mean i think there are a lot of similarities there and and indeed you know taking mark twain's uh purported quote that history might not repeat itself but it sure does rhyme if you go back because you know we've gone back 400 years then to the civil wars you go back 400 years again you come to Magna Carta, which was again a, a struggle over sovereignty between the barons and the king. Um, again, divided on on um, on, on these sort of grounds of uh, of which side of the, the fence one stood. So I, you know, it's it's quite interesting how these things have uh, gone round in full circle. And um, how did the Battlefields Trust and the National Civil War Centre and the Scottish Battlefields Trust assist you with the book? Well, as I mentioned, I mean, undertaking work of this nature, I mean, I realised that very, very quickly. Um, It's the first ever attempt to fully map the wars, and it wasn't going to be possible without harnessing the knowledge of the members of those three organisations. All of the battle maps were sent to uh, trust members in the Battlefields Trust and Scottish Battlefields Trust for their scrutiny and um, and their views. I mean, not, not that I took them uh, verbatim. I I, um, uh, I certainly looked at what they had to say. If I agreed with it, I went with it. I mean, at the end of the day, it's my work. But largely, we were in, in agreement. And all the siege maps were sent to Kevin Winter at the National Civil War Center uh, for his um, their input. Um, 
So the level of help I received, I have to say, was um, was astonishing. Um, and I can also add that the book would not be as up-to-date, as accurate, or as full um, as it is without their help. When I looked at the book, um, one of the things I noticed was um, that the detailed um, explanations around tactics, which was really interesting. For example, the Dutch and the Swedish formation. So would you mind just summarising the main pros and cons of, of the Swedish formation v the Dutch formation? Well, yes, I mean, I did that work really, again, to for my own benefit initially. And then I thought, well, actually, um, it's jolly useful. And therefore, I turned it into a chapter to add in the book. Um, I mean, both the Swedish and the Dutch formations provide depth, uh, and they both provide a mix of firepower and protection. Protection, firepower with, of course, the musket and protection with the pike. But the Swedish adopted this sort of checkerboard system, and that presented a broader front. Uh, and that broader front enabled them to bring down greater firepower. Firepower wins battles. I mean, that's a, a fact. Uh, Wellington realized that, and that was the crux of his uh, tactical deployment of his infantry uh, in the defeat of the French column. And this is the column versus line argument by deploying uh, a battalion in two lines and enabling every single musket to be brought to bear on the French who were coming in tightly packed and dense columns enabled Wellington to triple uh, his firepower, uh, even though he had, um, you know, two-thirds of the, the numbers or even half the numbers uh, of the French. Now, that going back to the Swedish system, the, the checkerboard deployment enabled the musketeers to do um, pretty much the same. It also enabled them to move uh, much more easily uh, and to counter-march or move into what's called double file, which enabled them to effectively double the firepower on the advancing uh, infantry um, or cavalry. But the Dutch system uh, had three lines, and that was a much more difficult defensive line, therefore it had greater depth, much more difficult to penetrate, and better suited certain types of terrain. Um, it also made command and control much easier. If we get back to the French thing of column, that's exactly why the French advanced in column. It, it enabled the officers and the non-commissioned officers, the sergeants and, and the corporals, to control uh, the troops uh, much more easily. Do you think the royalist use of Swedish tactics at Edgehill gave them any telling advantages? No, I don't think it did. Um, Edgehill was an inc inconclusive battle, uh, lots of reasons for that. It was the first engagement. Uh, Essex was reluctant to fire the first shots against his king. Um, Rupert, who was commanding the Royalist cavalry on the right wing, uh, and Wilmot, who was commanding the balance of the Royalist cavalry on the left wing, they um, attacked at uh, the start of the battle, as was quite traditional. Uh, they chased off most, and this is the key thing, but not all of the parliamentarian cavalry, but then they disappeared for many miles, uh, chasing those cavalry off and then getting embroiled in the parliamentarian rear and enjoying the plunder of their baggage train in around Kyneton. Well, that opened an opportunity for the remaining parliamentarian cavalry, um, the two brigades of Balfour and Stapleton. Um, and because the uh, the Royalists were deployed in that Swedish formation. If you recall, I said it was a broader front, 
greater firepower, but it was it was easier to penetrate. And it enabled uh, Balfour and Stapleton to actually get in between the uh, Royalist brigades um, and uh, to cause all sorts of havoc. Um, in fact, the parliamentarians were deployed not in the Dutch triple formation, but in a, in a two-line formation, which would have been dubbed by that stage the German formation. And this sort of encompassed the advantages of both the Swedish and the Dutch systems in that you'd got increased firepower by only having two lines. Um, but, of course, the, some disadvantages, but it was easier to train for and deploy with. And it comes as no surprise, therefore, that by 1643, both sides tended to use that German system of double lines for pretty much the rest of the war. Okay, um, that's been really, really interesting, Nick. Thank you very much. You're welcome. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Please share news of the podcast and help bring the Civil War to a wider audience. Listen out for the next episode on Sir Thomas Fairfax. I'll be speaking to three guests, M.J. Logg, a Civil War novelist, Professor Andrew Hopper, Fairfax's biographer, and once again, Colonel Nick Lipscomb. Thanks for listening.